the thing, the thing that, that people with hair don't know about us bald dudes is if there are ever two of us alone in an elevator together, we like bend over and touch heads. Hey, yeah. Thanks for joining me. I hope your week has started off really well. Things have been pretty good here. Lots of writing. <laughs> my boastful ambition of cranking away on my manuscript has been abated by the input of 45 plus pages of notes into the manuscript. I think I have one more day of inputs and I can start making the adequate changes. It's really interesting. This process that I go through when it comes to revision, taking these disparate notes or theme threads or character arcs, and I hunt through this, I don't know, 150 plus thousand word document to find, oh, here's where this goes, here's where this goes. So then when I actually do the revision, these notes are just sitting right there in the location where they're supposed to go. So it's this interesting, uh, I, I, it's like a road marker. You're driving along and the speed limit changes or the name of the town changes and I have to adjust. It's what works for now. Hopefully the, it works for good. I uh, missed the Oscars. Busy doing something else, but uh, super excited to see some of the results and, uh, and you know, I, I get that same sort of excitement of, oh, I didn't see that movie. So I get to go watch something Oscar worthy and I'm looking forward to catching a few of these movies. Um, today's guest is um, Van Jensen. It was an amazing talk and I'm super excited to share this with everyone. I love the talks where I kind of forget we're talking and I feel like I learn a lot in the process. His work is great. He's super articulate about what he does. And it, there's no doubt that he has a lot more to give to the industry. And not to mention he has, he has a whole new industry coming forward with his first novel coming out this fall. I guess November, Godfall. Well, we've been in stores. So I'm going to say you heard it here first, but that's so not true. But anyway, it was great talking with Van. And I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, I try to keep text turned off on my, uh, like, iMessage turned off just because, yeah. you know. I actually, like, when I'm writing, I, I turn Wi-Fi off completely. So that's, that's so brave and, um, and admirable. I um right when the when the pandemic hit and I went over to our storage unit and I happened to have an armchair in there. So I would park my truck yeah. in front of the storage unit with the door open, sit there and I would just write. And it was great because there's no Wi-Fi, no anything. Yeah. Yeah, I I used to I, I built a shed in our backyard and I would write there and I didn't I had it wired for electricity, but not for Wi-Fi. Uh -huh. uh, no, no internet. And, um, and it was great. And then it just like Atlanta has started getting like insane amounts of rain 
And so the back of our yard just turned into a swamp and it was like, I just couldn't keep it dry and like keep the mildew out of it. So I ended up moving to, uh, to a new office, but yeah, I just, when it's time to write, it's just like, click Wi-Fi off. Let, let's go. Dude, that's great. Yeah. It, it, it became a bit untenable with the, um, you know, the summer heat was just so hot. Yeah. I'm like, let me just see if there's other options. And I finally, there's a, um, a writer's co-working space here in town. It's like this writing organization, but they have like this half of a house. And so what they do is they charge you 85 bucks a month and you can schedule when you want to go there and write. And so I go there every morning from nine to one and wow. And bang out the work. That's amazing. It's a great, great thing and a great deal. It's not too, not too bad. Not too shabby. Yeah. Yeah. Best deal in town. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's cool. So how long have you been in Atlanta? We moved here, let's see, fall of 2007. Okay. All right. So yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of weird to think how long it's been. Why Atlanta? Um, so we, my wife and I met, like we both just, very randomly happened to um, get jobs at this newspaper in Little Rock, Arkansas. So she was an editor and I was a crime reporter. And it was for both of us, it was like the job that we could get out of college. Yeah. And uh, so um, met there, got married. And then, you know, it's, it's like, I, I knew even then like newspapers, there's not much, future here and I really wanted to do like I was always into narrative nonfiction um Mm -hmm. and that was that was kind of my drive and she wanted to go to law school and so we just we were like you know what we're not going to stay here let's just quit our jobs and move somewhere and and like literally just like overnight we're like we're done we're moving somewhere we don't entirely know where uh settled on Atlanta because it had a lot of good options for law schools and uh Mm -hmm. yeah just like packed up and went and wow figured it out damn obviously pre having children yeah well listen man atlanta is just has been exploding for 25 years now yeah it's and it kind of like i've had a lot of conversations with with friends who've been here for a while and we're all sort of like like is it time to move right (laughs) you know because it's it's like every year we add another hundred thousand people to the city proper. And it's just, it's not like there's no, there's not any infrastructure for, (laughs) for that many people. So it's, it's like every busy intersection, they just plot more, like more condos down on it. Oh my God. Yeah. Getting a little rough. I lived there in the late nineties. Dave Johnson but um, it was real tough to handle the lack of infrastructure. That was like the number one issue. Yeah, I mean, cities that cities that have a real like civic vision and mm-hmm. you know build to grow. Um, I mean, they're they're great, and the and and so much of it is like real public transport and yeah. Um, yeah, when when you don't have it, and so much of our, you know, it's just this car based culture that we can't we can't get rid of. Man, places just get it's 
it's impossible. It's it unless you live in Virginia Highlands. Yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have to walk. I mean, unless you live like downtown, um, it, it's just there's nowhere to go. Yeah, and actually, Virginia Highlands is where my office is. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and Where, uh, whereabouts? Uh, just off the Beltline. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and uh, and then we live just like a couple miles away, so we're you know it's like we're close to everything, and our neighborhood is super walkable. Mm-hmm. I just like, you know, I think back of like when we first moved here, and uh, you know, it was like, oh, like I'm gonna pop over to you know this whole other side of town. Like it'll like I'll drive surface streets, and it'll take 15 minutes. And you know, now yeah. I, I think about those areas, and it's like, oh, that'd be like an hour and a half. It, or, it's for an hour. Um, my, so my wife is from Atlanta. Okay. But now her mother moved away and her sister lives up in Marietta, which is way out of town. Yeah. It's like an hour. So yeah. we're like, oh, we never go in. We yeah. never go in. Yeah. Can't blame you. Although I found out that uh, Carl's story, the the amazing yeah. inker, live, lives in the same town that they do. So now, so I got to track him down next time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean there there are so many comic book people in Atlanta and I never see them. Right. And and like I was going to ask you. Yeah, like good friends of mine, um like Rob Venditti, you know, we we wrote together for years and uh but he's up in um uh like kind of the next next area north of Marietta. And mm-hmm. it's just it's such a haul to get there. So like I think I've seen him like once in the past like since covid basically right yeah and you know this is one of my best friends in atlanta that's it's terrible but yeah i mean all like all of the cool creative stuff that i've gotten to do in my career like all of that has become you know it's come from being in atlanta so mm-hmm. um yeah still have a lot of affinity for it I mean, this is great. Like, I love conversations about, you know, c- civic, uh, <laughs> civic infrastructure. And like, this is like, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, but um, I feel like cities overall are just really bad at communal spaces and like communal oh, gathering. Yeah. Like, it, and I mean, that's probably more than anything, a legacy of segregation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like cities don't know how to get people together no no and there's you know it's a crazy thing is i think the lessons learned in atlanta nationally have benefited other other cities so nashville maybe some austin factor definitely houston like these other southern cities have realized like oh wait we can't just throw four million people here and expect it to work right yeah yeah and strangely like atlanta still like still hasn't learned it's like let's just let, let's just turn like all civic yeah. decision making over to developers and cross our fingers right i don't know if i mean the thing is i think that genie went out of the bottle you know at the for the olympics yeah. like they got all this money they built marta to move the workers around but not to move the people of the city around and that just really kind of went from that point yeah and we live in Asheville, so we're not too far away from you. Yeah. And it's exploding on a very small scale. It is exploding. And they 
have zero plan that we can see. It's just a matter of like, well, let's build more hotels. Let's, you know, and those, those large apartment complexes are now appearing, you know, in the periphery of Asheville. Yeah. We actually, we were just up there and I hadn't been for like uh, six or seven years. And yeah, I had that like, Oh, Asheville's Mm -hmm. it's, it's doing that thing. Still. I mean, a great, great city though. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very cool spot to be, but you also go, having lived in Atlanta, you go, oh boy, this is a, <laughs> this will be interesting. Yeah. I, I, I know the end game here and it's not great. Yeah. Our mascot for our baseball team is called the tourists. So <laughs> that's the name of the team. So like, that's I right. don't think they have, we don't have another plan, but like yeah. get the tourists to come. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had forgotten that, but yeah, we went to a uh, Rome Braves versus Asheville Tourists game. There you go. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's still any conversation about infrastructure, but um, <laughs> that's what the that's what the people tune in for. They're like, you know, you get a little bit of comics, but mostly it's yeah, so it's civil it's, discourse. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, but I think, but it, this is the thing: is that this kind of stuff is the source of story. You yeah. you look at these things and you go, oh, okay, because like, you know, we're talking about population increase and we're talking about, you know, the, the, there are the sort of the second and third order effects of this. And, you know, you address that, or at least you address a solution to that in ARCA. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting thing that like, yes, this is, while this may seem completely random, it's not because it uh, it affords you the opportunity of someone who may think of these things to go well what happens yeah yeah i mean i i try to think of myself as someone who is very like intellectually engaged in the world around me i guess and you know people people always you know the the two main questions i get is like number one how do you defeat writer's block and Mm-hmm. you know that's a whole other thing but i'm just like you know okay like tough just write you know or or just like admit that you're just not writing um yeah. but if you want to get into that part right now i'm happy to or if you want to <laughs> wait till you finish uh, your thought and then we'll get back to it yeah let's circle back to that um yeah. but two is just you know the like where do you get your story ideas and and, oh, right. yeah. and I, i'm always like you know story ideas are that's the easy part. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's like story ideas. They, they're kind of, I don't know, a, a dime a dozen. It's all like what you do yeah. with the idea. But for me in kind of, you know, collecting information that then becomes a, a story or that might become a story. I just try to consume a lot of information and like, and, and really be thinking about, what's going on in the world, what's going on around me, like what are what are these interesting little bits? And I almost imagine them as like oddly shaped stones that are like, you know, it's like every bit of information. It's like, okay, here's a new weird stone that I mm. just like put into my brain. And so then I have like all these rumbling, like randomly shaped bits of stone. And then every once in a while, a couple of them like click. Click. Yep. And I say, oh, okay, like that, that's sort of 
something that I want to explore. And then, you know, once I have two that click, then I'm like, okay, let me look through all these other stones and like try to fit them. And so, yeah, like, you know, you never, you never really know, but where something's going to lead you. But I think a lot of like, you know, civic and environmental angst and like existential worry, uh, obviously mm -hmm. went into Arca and that it's, you know, a story about what happens after the end of the world. Um, but then I also, I'm from, uh, the plains and I had read about in like Nebraska and Kansas, I think Kansas, especially there are these, um, these efforts and, and this is happening all over the world, like New Zealand of, of the ultra rich to like buy, it was like buying, um, decommissioned nuclear missile silos right. to, to be there. Like we're going to create these like super ultra luxe underground utopias, utopias yeah. just for us. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just that thought of like, what would the, like, of course the ultra rich would have a plan. Uh, for you know when <laughs> when the world goes to hell, and I I read this um, I can't remember who it was who wrote it now, but I read this really fascinating opinion article by this guy who's like he's a futurist, so he's you know mm -hmm. he's like forecasting what's going to happen, and he he does a lot of speaking events, and he he wrote that um, someone contacted his speakers bureau and you know, it was like, okay, like we, we would like to have him come and give a talk. And so they asked for information. It's like, okay, like what's the group, you know, what's the audience, what's the general topic. And the person was being really like secretive about it. And they're like, well, what's his normal fee? And then they offered like 10 times that. Oh my God. All right. And so he's like, sure. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like as, as long as my safety is okay, like I will go and do this. And so he goes, and instead of going to like a theater or, you know, a college campus or whatever, he's just taken to like this really nice house. And hmm. they take him to a room inside the house and it's like five chairs. So there's one chair for him and then a chair for these four guys who show up and they're all like billionaires, you know, right? maybe trillionaires, like, you know, these ultra billionaires, super rich guys and he didn't say who they were and they sit down and they're they're just like okay what happens when society falls apart and he starts to talk through like well you know it's it's like this could cause society to fall apart or this could cause society and they're like no 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 like we don't care how it happens but like once it happens what happens what happens because you know, it's like society crumbles, money doesn't exist. Right. So all that wealth that we have is worthless. So what do we do then? Mm. And that just struck me so deeply that yeah. it, it's, you know, it's all about like, I've, I've accumulated these riches and they've afforded me the ability to buy literally whatever and whoever I want. And I need to maintain that. Like it's like survival is not enough. It's like, I, I need to yeah. survive in style. And, and that, <laughs> that was the thing where I was like, okay, okay. There's some, like, there's something really rich here to explore. Oh, for sure. There's this, you know, there's this fantasy, you know, we've seen, see it playing out all over the place with people preparing for this 
you know, end of days kind of belief. And, and I'm not above it in the, um, you know, the intellectual curiosity of it. Like, what would I do? I love, I love the, I love that sort of that example. I had this sort of, I had this recurring dream and I love my life and I love my wife, but I had this a recurring dream of just somebody showing up and saying, you got to get out of town. Right. You know, and I'm like, oh yes, it's on. <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. so and and but like these people you're talking about, they're not me, they're not you, they're not fantasizing about, you know, fashioning a spear and creating, you know, a survival enclave. That they they're not part of that world. Yeah. They have a very different like how can they create a structure where they don't have to, you know get a splinter, you know, and risk some sort of infection, like how can they live and how can they, you know, how can they endure? Because somehow I think they also think that it'll all go away. Yeah. And once we get through it, we'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's wild to me. And just the, I, I kind of thought of it in terms of like, you know, you, you look at sort of, um, the, the last time that income disparity was this high. And mm. that ended with these rich families creating a ton of the infrastructure that is still with us, like public libraries, you know, entire colleges, uh, and national it, parks, national parks, like huge, huge projects that they were like, all right, like we have all this stuff, like let's use it to make the country better to make, to make the mm-hmm. world better in some way. And not to say all of them did, like I am certain that most of them, you know, we're, we're looking at you, De Beers family. <laughs> right, you. right. Right. Um, but you know, and you, you do see a few people here and there, but I, I think even like the stuff that, that we're seeing, it's more like, all right, I'm going to create my own nonprofit that is going to be this foundation that I, you know, is more of like elevating my name. um, Elevating your name, getting your name on a, on an institution, you know, doorway and supporting whatever interest you have. Yeah. Which is not the common good. It is the individual good. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've got a friend, uh, that I I write with and and his wife works in, in, uh, fundraising for, for a big, uh, international organization. And, um, she talked about that and Atlanta is huge for nonprofits. It's like our Mm -hmm. philanthropy is like our big business really. And, um, so she was, um, we were asking her like, you know, how, how do you break down like the percentage wise, like people that are truly benevolent, people that are like 50, 50 and people that are purely out for their own interest. And she was like, all right, like purely benevolent is 0%. <laughs> right. And, and then in the middle is like 20% and then like 80% are just out for their own self-interest. Well, there's a, there's a, I don't know what it is, you know, but there's a saying that no one will ever donate themselves into poverty. Like you will not give away money to make yourself poor. So, um, that you, you will give what's comfortable. 
Yeah. Not really what is uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I certainly enjoy, um, you know, like I have a comfortable life. Um, I, mm. I enjoy the stuff that, that money brings, but I also, um, I just don't care enough about money mm-hmm. to let that be the driving motivator for life choices. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is oh, good. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I think some of that is like, I grew up in Western Nebraska and this is like one of the poorest counties in Amer- right. America. And like, I, I, you know, we knew kids that like wouldn't have running water, wouldn't have electricity. Um, that, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't like one family. It was multiple, you know, several families yeah. all, all around us. Um, and so, yeah, like my, my definition of what is enough money, I think is just very, very different. Yeah. I, it, it, it's just as long as you, it's not this overriding concern and worry, then that's okay. Yeah. And, and I don't know how big that sweet spot is because there's a large gap of worrying about the money when you yeah. don't have it. And then there's a lot large swath of worrying about the money when you have a lot of it. Yeah. Or at least the ideal is to live in a space in life where you're not worrying about things. It's tough. Yeah. So you grew up in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Um, was just you? Uh, in terms of like siblings? Siblings, yeah. Or was I was I raised by wild animals? By yourself. <laughs> yes. Oh, now this is the story. Yeah. You know, it, it, uh, somehow I turned up in a herd of cattle and, uh, you know, made my way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in a really interesting family for, and this is like super rural, uh, my hometown, it's around 300 people. Um, and it, it might be less than that. Uh, it, it was around 300 when I was growing up and then the whole County, it's like a thousand square mile County that has 2000 people in it. So, you know, the, the big town, the County seat had like 700 people. Oh, big. Yeah, not a not a street light in the whole, or a, like a stoplight in the whole county. Huh. Um, but yeah, but my family there, um, yeah, just very very interesting, very different people for for kind of what the area was. Uh, my dad's family ran the movie theater in the county, and going all the way back to uh, my great grandparents and uh, silent film. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that, and that ran through the seventies. So it closed before I was born. Um, but then my, my grandma on that side, she was an English teacher and a poet and she, um, you know, she got one of those giant satellite dishes, like it like covers your whole yard. (laughs) And she, she was always like on VHS taping, the movies that had played at the theater. So she had this, you know, just this enormous library of VHS tapes of all, you know, all of the movies from like the thirties through, uh, you know, seventies. And so she would, you know, she would give us like, we were always, you know, going to grandma's library to borrow movies. So that was what I grew up on. Like I, I was born in 82 
and I have like no, I mean, I've, I've caught up on some of it, but I had no knowledge of 80s cinema. Um, right. It was just all like, yeah, just this classic, classic stuff. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. It, it, I mean, just said, and then I would get like stories of like, cause my dad, my dad and his brother, they were projectionists there. And, and actually like my uncles on my mom's side of the family, cause my mom is from there too. Like my uncles on that side of the family worked up there. So everyone knew the theater. And so they would tell me these stories about, you know, this is the stuff that happened in the theater, or like what was going on in the town or like uh, my grandpa who died when I was real young, uh, when he was running the theater, he was always doing like, like these like pranks to like, you know, he would like, show creature from the black lagoon and then make a homemade creature costume and run shrieking down the aisle like, during, during the showing and stuff like that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just such a, such an education in storytelling uh, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting, you know, like I'm getting the film, but then I'm also getting the story around the film. Right. Yeah. Um, and then on my mom's side, um, my grandma on that side, she was a poet also, and then the librarian in the town. So very, you know, very literary minded, um, all of them, you know, really pushing me to, and I, I was like writing and drawing comics from the time I was like three or four. Um, right. So, but they were really, you know, sharing, like sharing great books, sharing great movies. And, um, and on my mom's side, she has several siblings and all of them ended up, you know, from small town, Nebraska went, uh, overseas out of, you know, out of high school or college. Like my mom graduated from the university of Nairobi in Kenya. Okay. And then yeah, like went to study anthropology and yeah, spent several years in Africa and then came back. Unbelievable. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And they're, um, my mom and uh, and two of my uncles are artists and now like have an art gallery in the, in my hometown where they display their display their paintings and you know have like have a good bit of success with it. Well, it's okay. So this is what's interesting. Um, I mean, aside from the outlier principle of all of all this, in some yeah. sense, and these two very distinct um, cataloging sides of your family you know this sort of visual catalog and this literary catalog it's a really interesting combination which you know in this case comic books do sit in the middle of that pretty well yeah but there's this other aspect where you know thinking about arca and not giving anything away what the gift that your mother received in this library in literary background is the sort of same thing your protagonist in Arca has yeah. that takes someone from their place where ostensibly you could just live your whole life there and that's it. And yeah. maybe go to Branson, Missouri for a holiday and otherwise end up on the other side of the world doing completely different things, studying anthropology, which is like studying people yeah and why they're pe- and why they're people yeah. <laughs> and and that's i mean that's a really fascinating sort of thing and and it's interesting how that you by intention or just by osmosis pluck that sort of out into your works 
Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely there. And for, you know, for anyone tuning in who doesn't, uh, is not familiar with Arca. So the, the kind of the big introductory plot of it is you've got this spaceship that's headed, you know, towards the nearest habitable planet. And it's, um, it's really owned and operated by the formerly the richest people, most powerful people on earth. And they have serving them as these teenagers and the teenagers are teenagers and children. And they're, you know, effectively slaves, but with the promise that once they reach this new planet, you know, they, they get to, to be like the Lords and rulers of this whole new domain. And, and they, they got the gift of survival where everyone else on earth died, but, you know, they, they were like cherry picked for the, for this grand mm-hmm. existence. So, so that's kind of the background of it. And as I was thinking of it fairly early on, um, the thing that hit me was Plato's parable of the cave. Okay. Which is of course the story of the, the, um, and I, I think I remember right. It, it was like Plato's relaying the story, but it, it was, he, or he wrote the story. But it was someone else who originally crafted the story, but anyway, so it's, you have a group of people who are chained inside a cave facing the back wall of the cave. That's all they see. They can't turn their heads. Mm-hmm. And so to them, all of reality is the shadows that they see projected on the cave wall in front of them and the sounds that they hear from farther up the cave. And where the parable goes is that if someone was released from those shackles and went out and saw what reality actually was, that they would be so terrified that they would want to go back to that mm-hmm. reality that they knew. And it's that parable gets used a lot of different ways, but the intent of it was to describe the power of education Mm -hmm. that it, you know, that if you keep someone uneducated, that you can control them so easily because they don't have the critical thinking. They don't have the true knowledge of the full context of the world in order to, you know, to have agency. Right. Sure. In their own lives. They they turn over, turn everything over to the people who are bringing them food or, you know, handing them a, a latrine to, to right. in. Uh, right. And, and so, you know, that then of course has been echoed in, you know, Fahrenheit 451 and 1984. Like it's, you know, it's, it's not, not it's a theme. It's a theme. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I wanted to kind of approach it a little bit differently because like you were saying, like, um, and I, I haven't talked specifically about this with, with my mom, but, um, you know, I know for me growing up, super small town, you know, there were not, like, I was the one kid that read comic books in, okay. in the whole town. Like, I, I got, you know, made fun of for reading comic books because, you know, it's like a bunch of kids that work on farms and they're, they're sure, just like, right. like, what? This is, this is dumb. And I had to go to the grocery store and ask them, like, can you order Batman and Spider-Man for me, please? <laughs> um, and... But for me, you know, as much as I love that place, books were this incredible escape where, like, I, I mean, I didn't get on an airplane until I was 18. So I, like, mm, okay. you know, 
extremely limited exposure to the world. Uh, you know, a lot of my life spent staring at a cave, but books pulled me away from there. Like books took me mm-hmm. all over the world. And so absolutely. I was thinking about, you know, if, if I was a nefarious uh, billionaire, God help us all, uh, you know, <laughs> want, wanting to control people like, no, I, I wouldn't teach kids to read. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a really interesting concept to prosecute, you know, throughout a a work. Um, Was that I mean, was that that sounds to me that was your clear, like, idea, like, this is the core theme that I want to sort of work through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think one thing that's really fascinating, this is going to sound a bit far afield, maybe, but um, one thing that's very fascinating to me in looking at when you have extreme right-wing governments and extreme left-wing governments, I mean, like, you know, Mm -hmm. extreme, extreme, and, you know, you take like, um, you know, fascist Germany and, and Stalin's Russia. When you compare the like on the ground reality, they're shockingly similar. So I, here's the thing we, we, so like there was this this moment in my life where I, I was thinking I was thinking about um politics and you know everything had to be this or that this or that and and I kept going like it has to be chocolate or vanilla you know that like these are our choices and at one point I said why does it have to be dessert why can't it be other things right and in that context of where we have this left right thing well that left right automatically sets up a planar concept this is a ray. This is a single line, two dimensions. We have a left and we have a right. But what we're noticing and what you're describing is a circle. Yeah, absolutely. And you push it too much in one direction, you're going to be upset about this thing. So while we have, and I don't typically get very political, I'm not going to be political in this, but we have a point where people are trying to ban books. And we have a lot of people angry about books getting banned and, and rightfully so. But if you look at the other direction, (laughs) they want to get rid of, they want to get rid of things that are printed as well. It, what I think it gets to is control. Yes. And it's a really hard thing to look at reality and look at the world around you and separate, like take yourself out of yourself and say, you know, I, I know, and then this is me speaking for myself. I know the values that I have, the, the things that I think are important, you know, the, the code of ethics that I have. Um, and I also know that that is not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And you just get, and it gets more extreme and more extreme and it, it can absolutely go either way that, that people are like, well, like this is my rigid definition of what of behavior that I want, and everything everything's got to be in there. Yeah, and I just think that universally, that's a really dangerous place to exist. Yeah, and I I think this is not a unique phenomena of now. I mean, I, no. I you know I I have the you know my theory is if you travel back 700 years, 800 years, 1200 years, it doesn't matter. And you handed people 
mobile phones, you know, with a working network, they would yeah. behave exactly the same that we do because we're the same thing. We have not evolved right. as a species. And, you know, from 2000 years ago, we really are the same. Maybe our appendixes are a bit smaller, but I mean, yeah. to be, to be honest, it's just about that. And it's really, it's just painful that we have this very sort of narrowed view and I think the feedback loop is what makes this become more and more narrow rather than expansive, which you think it would be expansive with the bulk of human knowledge available to us at, you know, at our fingertips. We react the opposite direction because going back to what you were saying about the shadows in the cave, what's out there is different, odd, strange, and I don't know if I know that. I don't think I want to trust it. I'm going to just kind of stay here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, my general theory on the internet is that it is exceptional at giving a large number of people a very shallow amount of information, mm, like yeah. a very broad but extremely shallow bit of information. Mm -hmm. And it's actually like has a negative impact on deep information. Because we, mm -hmm. we consume so much shallow information that, you know, you don't, like, you don't go deep on stuff anymore. You don't take the time to really dive into things. And, I mean, that, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole other, uh, other conversation. But, um, you know, I, I think, like, I just think with reading that so much of it is about consuming different things that are, you know, from a wide, a wide variety of authors and sources that, that hit you in different ways so that you can, you know, it's, it's build critical thinking and, and really start to, but also like build, build narrative sense, like build empathy. Um, I mean, just all, mm -hmm. all of those skills that are, are so essential to, to personhood. Um, and it's, it's tricky because, you know, like we, um, we were just on a road trip and we put on an audiobook of where the red fern grows. Okay. Yeah. And, and I had read it as a kid and had seen the movie and remembered really liking it. You, you know, it's like a, a kid in a very rural setting, like who just like wants to have hunting dogs and wants to go and kill raccoons with his hunting dogs. And so there, you know, there's a certain like vibe to it in that sense where it's like, yeah. all right, like we're really getting in the granular of going and killing, you know, raccoons that are not like not looking, not, not causing anyone any harm. Yeah. They're not asking for it. Right. Um, and then it also like, you know, there's a lot of like the kid keeps praying for different things. And, um, but then it, it's also, it's like, it's sexist. Like this, anytime, you know, the kid's mom or his sisters uh, are, are brought into the story. It's like, but, but they didn't understand, you, you know, women, right. women folk. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, it's like you, you have these thoughts as you're reading these things of, or, you know, sharing them with your kids of like, okay, like I, I you know, I think that it was worth it to bring this in because there are these, you know, these cool aspects of this, but also like it's messy. Mm -hmm. 
So we just have a conversation with them about like, here's the messy part of it. Like, I want you to understand that. And, and I just hope that people are, you know, able to look at books as like, this isn't just like, like books aren't like a red pill that you just like, like, you know, stuff in and then it like transforms you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of a process of information accrual and growth and learning that hopefully goes on your entire life. Well, that's the, you, you were saying all these different sources and it is what it is, is it's like cooking. Like you like, Hey, I'm going to make myself a wonderful Indian dish. Well, you have to have a bit of all these different things to put together to make the thing, you know, palatable and exciting and flavorful. But if you just sat there with a bowl of turmeric and a spoon, you're not going to get the same sort of sense of like, that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. So I think it's just a matter of really opening yourself up to as many things like as possible, you know, like, Hey man, I was not maybe the most adventurous eater as a kid, but then at one point in my life, I realized like, well, other people eat this stuff and they don't die from eating it. So the worst thing that can happen is I don't enjoy this particular meal. Yeah. But I get to have another, I get to have three more tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say it is just, it is very fascinating to be and like terrifying to be coming out with a book about, you know, using reading and the lack of reading as a system of control when Mm -hmm. that that's that's going on in our country in a very a very big way and the i think the thing that that some people get into and i i try to approach people with whom i maybe don't see eye to eye with some some grace um and I, I think that there are people who are are sort of like knee-jerk reactionary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there are also people who, you know, especially everything with like, like there are conversations going around uh, around race and sexuality and gender that are the, like culturally new conversations. Like we, yeah, for sure. Like we were not having these conversations or at least not openly having these conversations for a very long time. And so for some, I mean, you know, for me, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. Um, for some people, like those are weird or new or scary conversations. Um, like absolutely there are big biases that, that come in with some people. And I, I think some of it is a fear of, you know, well, like I, as a parent want to be able to kind of decide what exposure my, my kids have to, to mm-hmm. different things. And like, as a parent, I relate to that. Like there, there, you know, there are books that I'm not like, I don't want my kids to read yet, but then also like, mm-hmm. I was also very big on like, I, you know, I want to, I want them to be reading about sex education in a like palatable, you know, child oriented means like as early as possible to, to normalize things. Um, and I, you know, I want them understanding racism as early as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it's like, we, we just like culturally are so bad at having big, tricky, complicated conversations 
it's so so much easier to on either side get into this like yeah like we got we have to cut the head off of that thing i mean listen every conversation as a writer you know every conversation is an agenda based exchange that's yeah. what your characters are doing one character wants one thing another wants another thing if they do, if they want the same thing, they're not having a conversation. They're planning. So yeah. there's a different, a different thing. And I think that we, we listen, change is scary for everybody. Mm-hmm. So we, we, when these big subjects, which are very, you know, potent, you know, emotionally, the idea that there, I, I have to face things. I have to reckon with things. I don't want to do that. Let's not do that. And I'm not saying that's how everyone is, but that's just that sort of amygdala response to this kind of thing. You know, bringing this back to writing, it's having this wide group of influences, whether they're what you agree with or don't agree with, but there are these things out there. I mean, listen, history is filled with stuff you can't agree with, yeah. but it's fact and history. So you have to look at it and you have to understand it. But these are the things that we use. These are the building blocks when you create things. Yeah. And the ability to tackle subjects that are controversial or um, fraught, you can do that through literature in to whatever extreme you want. You can do it, on, uh, you can do it with a touch. You can do it with a such hammer. This is what we look for in art is what is this saying? What is this trying to say? Not a question. Do I agree with this? But is this legible? Yeah. I, you know, I had, um, I mean, I think this was kind of always my inclination, but I I had this experience. um, I can't remember what year, but it was, it was probably like, one of the first times I went to San Diego Comic-Con. So maybe like 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, like more than a decade ago now. And I was doing a signing and I can't remember if it was with DC Comics or if it was maybe it was with uh, Top Shelf, who uh, at the time was publishing uh, Pinocchio Vampire Slayer. Um, And, but anyway, I'm doing a signing and, you know, someone walks up and and like barely anyone knows who I am at that point. Right. I mean, still, still who knows who I am. Uh, But anyway, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not Neil Gaiman. Right. And back then I was especially not Neil Gaiman. So I was sitting there, you know, someone walks up and and their eyes kind of light up like it's Van Jensen. And I was like, yeah, yes, yes, that is who I am. And they're wearing a backpack and they're like, you know, pull out their backpack. They're like, are you, are you like, will you sign stuff? It's like, yep, that, that is specifically why I'm here. I am more than happy to. And they pull out a copy of whichever book and they start saying like, I can't re- I think they lived in like Arizona or something. And, you know, it was like one or two States away. And they're like, I drove, like I drove all the way here. And, and I, I like, I brought like my backpack of books and I looked in there and there's like five books in there Uh is is on there like yeah like this is what i brought and i'm like i'm just here today and i just really wanted to meet you and just a couple other people and and then they started talking about 
and I, I wish I could remember the specifics, but they, they were talking about whatever it was that I had written and some specific aspect of it where they were just like, when this happens, like that just like hit me so hard and it really like mm. connected with me. And, you know, for me, it's like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe anyone cares about anything that I do ever. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, that, that this person drove hundreds of miles and spent a significant amount of money and time to come and see me just to say, like, this meant so much to me. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I, I am writing this stuff that is going out into the world and it's touching people. Yeah. And, it, and it's affecting people and it's changing the way that they feel about maybe themselves or the world. And like, that's power. Mm-hmm. And, and and maybe like my, you know, I, again, I'm not Neil Gaiman. I don't have millions of readers at this point, you know, thousands or, you know, I don't, maybe hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, certainly. Um, Cumulatively yeah. you do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, but like even like thousands of people caring about who you are and what you do is, is mm-hmm. a wild, wild thing. Again, I'm from a town of 300 people. Like, you know, <laughs> right. having, having 300 people care about me, like that, that's like high watermark for me. So it just really made me dial in on the responsibility of putting fiction, putting stories out into the world. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I, I really hope to to do is to always use that to try to make the world a better place. And I'm big on like, I, I don't think I have answers, but I, I think I can get people asking the right questions. Mm. And, yeah. th- and that's really what I want to focus my books on. But I would just hope that, that readers and my, whether it's my readers or whether it's other readers just really understand and this is the thing that, that kind of keeps me up at night the most in all of these, you know, the, the kind of culture war stuff that we're talking about is you have to, as a writer, write characters that do not share your views and your values. Sure. I mean, it's just like, like if, if every character is just me, it's one, it's really boring. And two, there's no conflict. Um, right. Yeah. It's just a, a bunch of, you know, bald dudes agree, yeah. agreeing with each other. Um, yeah. and as a bald dude, I agree. Yeah. Right. Um, the thing, the thing that, that people with hair don't know about us bald dudes is if there are ever two of us alone in an elevator together, we like bend over and touch heads. Mm-hmm. They, you know, I, I, I shouldn't uh, say that. I shouldn't say that. No, no. I'm going to edit this out. Don't oh, worry. Okay. Good, good, good. Secret yeah. safe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, th- I, that's the thing that I worry about that I like, you know, we'll put something like, you know, like I, I did uh two dead, uh, a book with Nate Powell, uh, the artist who has done, you know, mm-hmm. the, the March books with John Lewis and, and tons of original graphic novels and just a phenomenal artist. And, and it's a book about racism and policing. And like, I think that that book comes across in a way that is very critical of, police and is very critical of racism but like there are characters in that book that are hyper aggressive cops that just you know want to hyper aggressively police black people especially and they're out and out racists in that book and you know it it's like if you take one panel of that story out of context and like look at what 
you know, this white guy sure. put into a book. Um, and, and that's not to say that you can't criticize me. Like if I put something out that has, you know, a broad racist message to it or a broad biased message to it, absolutely, you know, tear, mm-hmm. tear me apart. But it's, it's just that nuance in reading that I, I hope that we don't lose. Yeah. And I think, you know, even characters that are of whatever sort of version of what you spoke of, they still have to be dimensional. Like you can't like, because if you just make them, if you make them the Mohawk headed bad guys that are the street toughs that you see in all so many comic books, they have no meaning. They have Mm -hmm. nothing that all they are is just another punching bag. I think if you can give them some dimension, it grounds things. And it also makes the payoff for the protagonists to have more weight and significance. Absolutely. So we, you know, when writing and creating things, you just can't look at something and say, well, that's the two dimensional, you know, analog. I'm just going to use that here and that'll suffice. It's not going to produce the result that you really hope for. Well, and, and this is a big, like my, my sort of big storytelling theory is that the thing that matters most is that the audience can emotionally connect with the characters. Mm-hmm. And I, a, a little anecdote to illustrate that. So, and this is something, sometimes I teach writing or, you know, do lectures. And this is, this is a, a, a parable, if you will, that I, I pull out from, from time to time. But, um, there was one year that I was at New York Comic Con and I got invited to go to the like the Disney event where they're they're screening like, you know, chunks of their upcoming films and, you know, talents there and whatever. And one of the things was um, Pixar was doing a presentation for Up. Mm. And so uh, the the co-directors came on and they're talking about and like no one knew what Up was. You know, this no right. one, no one knew anything about. It. I think maybe there was like the image of like the house and the balloons in the sky, and like that that was it. And so they come up and they talk about it a bit, and they don't, you know, they don't say a whole lot. And they're like, all right, like we have a lot of footage to show you, so you know, we're gonna get right into it. And they showed almost the entire movie. Hmm. And it, I mean, it was like fifty minutes or something. It was a very long you know, thing. Wow. And it got done. And, uh, and we looked at each other and we're like, that was awful. (laughs) Like not just bad, but like wretchedly awful. And like, there was just like this super over the top bad guy. And Mm -hmm. then like these talking dogs and like dumb pratfalls and this grumpy old man and this annoying kid. And just like, Oh, like, Yeah. Pixar made a, a like terrible movie, not just bad movie, right. t- terrible movie. And so we walk away from it and like, and I just forget about it. And then, it, you know, it's like nine months or a year later or whatever. And up comes out and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, have you seen up? Like, Oh my God. This, oh, like I cried. Just sort of, <laughs> all this stuff. And I'm just like, what? Like, what do you No, Like that movie's bad. And it just all the reviews are great. And it's all anyone can talk about. And so my wife and I, like she really wanted to watch it. I was like, I can't sit through that again. And she kept like, I was like, okay, okay, okay. We'll we'll watch up. 
So we rented it. Uh, and this is back, you know, when uh, when you get the disc from Netflix. And oh, your your grand your grandmother didn't give you a VHS, <laughs> right? She she had died by that point, I think. Oh, um, I'm sorry, otherwise she hey nice nice long happy life. Um, yeah. So yeah, so we got the DVD and put it in, and this montage starts mm-hmm. of you know this this kid and this girl this boy and this girl and them starting out this friendship and kind of rivalry and the relationship and building and all of this thing and i was like wait what's this this wasn't it like this wasn't part of the movie what i saw just started with like this kid knocking on this old man's door Mm -hmm. and this thing keeps going and it goes through their story and wanting to have a kid and not be able to have a kid and then deciding to go on an adventure and then not being able to go on an adventure and my wife and I are crying on the couch (laughs) and then watched the whole rest of the movie and nothing else was changed about the movie other than that intro and I loved it Mm -hmm. it's like two different two different movies because I cared Mm-hmm. And then when I when that happened, I was like, "Oh, like that's that's the magic." And then later, um, I was reading about um, so you know the term suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of used commonly now that it's like it's like when you as an audience member go and watch something or read something like you need to suspend your disbelief to enjoy a film about aliens or you know whatever. But the, the term was coined by, I believe it was Coleridge. Um, and it was like this idea that at the time fiction was very real life, like super realistic. And when he wrote it, he said, as long as you craft real emotion, an audience will suspend their disbelief. So the onus was not on the audience. The onus is on the writer. And it's a writer. And wow. It, and it's all about realistic human emotion. And mm-hmm. so to get back to what you were saying about, you know, antagonists or, or villains, you, you just you have to apply the same thing. Because, if, you know, you can have a great protagonist, but if you don't care at all about the antagonist and if, if there isn't any emotional push and pull there, it's not going to be compelling. Yeah. Yeah, because purpose, purpose drives everybody, you know, hopefully, especially in literature, in works of art, purpose drives everybody because without it, you're just, you know, a bystander. Yeah. Yeah, it gets real boring real quickly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've we've read those comics. Um <laughs> I have start I have started and and not finished those those comics and books. Yeah. Um so so curiosity, you're living in a small town. You had to ask the grocer to send the com- you know, to get comics. How did you engage with them? How did you find them first? just real lucky chance. Um, I had a cousin who, like I said, my family was very international. His, uh, family, my aunt and uncle moved to Seoul, South Korea, and they were in that expat community there that was off of the Mm -hmm. military base. And they had a comic shop 
next or like as part of the military base because a lot of soldiers and, and their kids would want to read comics. And so he had this incredible access. And he was saying that they were like 10 cents a piece. And, hmm. and so he just had this massive comic book collection and he's a bit older than I am. Um, and so he came back and to visit and I was, I think three at the time and he had a backpack full of comic books. And so, you know, wow. and I like can still in my mind's eye, just like see him like unzip and, and comics spill out onto the floor. Um, and I think one of the first ones, cause he was really big into green lantern core. And I think that, I mean, that certainly would have been one of the very first ones that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty cool that the first, you know, superhero comic that I wrote was green lantern core. That's really cool. Yeah man it's that first contact with these things that you love whatever it is like i mean i can i have that vision of the comic book i have that same vision with music like i have all these memories of like i remember standing in line repeatedly to go see star wars you know in 1977 like these are important memories because you're engaging with something that is you know is changing you because yeah. you opened up, it opened up a portal in your your mind and your heart, and it goes in. So you have background. Obviously, you were doing journalism, and you said that you really, really are into narrative nonfiction. Yeah. Right. So, what gives you the right to make comic books? <laughs> this irrational yeah. sense. That, totally kidding. No, no. I mean, I like I ask myself that question. It's like you know, just look in the mirror. It's like, why do I think that like the world needs this? Like, mm-hmm. just like there. Um, yeah. Very dumb thought. No, you know, I, so I immediately like was drawing my own comic books and, and mm-hmm. my mom, you know, kept all, all of these old comics. I, I would also like, I was a weird kid. I was making political cartoons <laughs> as okay. as like a five-year-old um and i think part of it was i like wanted to draw stuff that would engage my parents and i knew that like they okay. were they were really into the news and like all, all that stuff so yeah i was like caricaturing reagan <laughs> mm-hmm. right. um as as five-year-olds do um and yeah and i you know kept drawing and i actually almost went to school for art but it i i never met anyone that made comics like this seemed like not a real thing and i mm-hmm. had no idea how to pursue it in any way um and then there was so much like i had a lot of shame around liking comic books because you know like i said no one else read them um i mean I, my dad and i like we have a great relationship but he you know, it was like, when are you going to put the kids' stuff away, right? And and be a grown up. Um, and my mom, you know, really really fostered my art because she's she's a painter. Um, but yeah, so I, I put comic books away. Like I was really into basketball, um, you know, really into journalism. And then I just happened to uh, I was working at the college newspaper in Nebraska. And I had these friends that they were reading comic books. And it was just like, wait, like, like. No one's punching you? Yeah, I was like, isn't, isn't that lame? And they're like, no, it's not lame. Like, who told you comics are lame? And so they literally, they're like, they're like you have to come to the comic shop with us. And so we would, uh, John and Neil, and we would go to the comic shop together. And then we would, 
you know, this is our like Wednesday tradition. We would go mm-hmm. and buy comics and then we would go to the Euro place downtown Lincoln and we would mm. eat a Euro and read our comics. And then we would trade comics. Dude. Oh man. I had the same thing in college. We, we, every, I think it was Saturday mornings. Um, we would leave the dorm and we would go to the Manhattan mall. Yeah. In Herald square. And like on the fourth floor was Jim Hanley's comic shop. Yeah. And then we would go get our comics. Then we would go upstairs, get our food, like at the great steak and shake company yeah. and sit down and eat the food and read comics with our 25 cent refills all afternoon. Yeah. It was the best. It's the best. Yeah. yeah. And, and Neil, um, it was, if anyone wants to look him up, Neil Obermeyer, who's an editorial cartoonist, uh, he um, he was always drawing and always making like short films and just you know doing all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, like you can actually do it. Like this can be a, a thing that you do. And so I mean, I was always pretty busy, but then I I just I really started writing again on the side, and um, like I wrote a really terrible novel. Uh, from the end of college into like my first year out of college um, and then uh, wrote I wrote one comic script that wasn't you know like wasn't anything that I could do anything with and I was working at that newspaper and there was this uh, guy there Dusty Higgins who was the staff cartoonist and we would you know read comics and talk about comics and just one day he did this sketch of like a bad Pinocchio who like lied and his nose shot through a cop. Okay. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Like he lied. Yeah. And then he did another one where it was like, Oh, but what if he lies and his nose shoots through a vampire? And I was like, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Like it's a wooden stake. Like that's great. And then shortly after that, we moved away, moved to Atlanta and uh, that had been in little rock, Arkansas. And then Dusty called me and he was like, I think there's something here with this Pinocchio vampire mm-hmm. slayer thing. And I was like, you know, in my head, I'm like, that's a dumb concept. <laughs> like, like that's, a, that's a like perfect one panel or three panel, like gag cartoon. Sure. Concept. Right? But I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then he was like, well, I, I, like, have you read the original Pinocchio? And I was like, I, no, or at least not like since I was a kid, but let me go back to it. And so I picked up the cheap paperback of Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio. And man, it is so weird. Yeah. Just amazingly weird and like very complex in the message. It's it's like, it's very anti-child. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it still is even in the Disney version. You're kind yeah. of, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it like Collodi hated children. Like he didn't have kids. He just like, he thought that they were <laughs> awful. Um, and like the original ending of it was it just Pinocchio gets hanged and is dead. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. And the crowd cheered. Yeah. And there were, there were so many protests against him that he was like, fine, I'll, I'll give it, <laughs> give it a good ending. Um, but at that point I was like, okay, like I, I see, and it was the emotional connection. It's like, I see this character that like, you know, you take this really immature, totally unprepared to be responsible in any way kid who also has this cool power. And then all of a sudden, like, it's like Geppetto's dead. 
and you put him into this position where it's like he's the one thing protecting the world mm -hmm. and so you put all the responsibility of the world on him when he wants no responsibility and and to me i was just like that's really cool like i can i can see where that can go and so yeah we just uh we got going on it and we did like i i wrote it really fast and then i i didn't have an intro for it and then all of a sudden i had this it was like one night i was like oh like i see it like this this quick 10 page intro i wrote that dusty drew it and um i i didn't i basically knew no one in comic books at that point still and i got um i had a friend who knew i was into comics he was into comics and he was like i'm gonna go to heroes con in Charlotte, like, will, yeah. you, will you come with me? So I said, sure. And I, I had like 10 copies of this 10 page preview, mm -hmm. took those with me. And I, I just like, I, I didn't have the guts to hand them to anyone. But then no. I, I went to this panel and there's this writer, Todd DeZago. And he was, I know Todd. Yeah. So he yeah. was he was talking about um, Stephen King's on writing and best it's the best book on writing yeah and so so I was like oh yeah like after the panel I was like hey like I'm sorry to introduce myself but like I just read it and this was and so we had this conversation about it and he's like who are you and, uh, <laughs> and like can we can we keep in touch and I was like so I don't like I don't have a card to give you but I have this comic mm -hmm. that has my email on. So I was like, you can just yeah. like tear the cover off. And he's like, wait, you, made, you like, you made a comic, give it to me. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, okay. So then, you know, we go our separate ways. So then I didn't know that this was happening, but Todd, it was the, um, the year after, uh, Craig Russo had died. Right. And so they were doing a big signing with, you know, it was like Mark Wade and Tim Sale and Darwin Cook and like all these you know, huge, huge name people were all doing this signing together. And, and because Todd was a collaborating. Uh, you, oh, you mean Mike? Mike. Yeah. Mike. Uh, Craig. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's not kill Craig yet. Oh my I gosh. Mean, he's Sorry. a delightful individual. Mike Waringo, not, not Craig. Uh, yes. Craig's the yes. guy that, yeah, Craig and Todd yes. collaborated afterwards. Ugh. Yes. Very close. Craig's, Craig's very alive. Uh, yes. Sorry, Craig. Uh, so yeah, so they were doing this benefit and um, Todd was was sitting there and was like reading the comic and like laughing. And everyone was <laughs> like, what, you know, what are you reading? And so he's, he's like, you have to read this and start passing it around to everyone. Around. So then I was just walk, you know, walking along minding my own business and I hear someone go, hey, Van. And I turn and it's like, Todd. Mark Wade and Darwin. And I think there was one other person that gosh, I can't remember who it was. And Todd's like, that's the Pinocchio guy. And, and they, <laughs> they start yelling. And I was like, what is happening here? And so they pulled me over and, and Mark like sat me down and he's like, who are you? Tell me your whole story. And I, and I like, I had just gotten accepted into an MFA program for novel writing. And I was, I was like conflicted about it. He was like, don't do that. You know, he's like, <laughs> you can do this. He's like, I'm going to tell you, he's like, here's who gets this published. This is what you do after it gets published. Like, this is how you get in the door at DC and Marvel. Like, this is the stair step. Like, mm -hmm. he's like, everyone comes with an idea, but you came with a comic. So I'm going to show you. So like go. Yeah. That was it. Damn. 
Damn. Todd's Todd's the best. And I'm I'm not gonna go on a big Todd side side bender here, but Todd is the best. Um, hugely so. underrated writer and hugely. He's <sighs> and just a great, yeah, great person. If you're not familiar with Todd's work, hunt it down, find it. He's he's the best. Yep. That's awesome. That is fantastic. That's one of the great ones. Um, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I feel I feel a lot of luck. Like I've I've had you know, I don't think you can have a career as a writer without a lot of bad luck and and like, <laughs> yeah. man, I've had some terrible luck on stuff. Um, but it's like without a huge amount of good luck, I wouldn't have had any of this. So. Mm-hmm. you know just... but but you did the thing that's the, here that's so that's the other thing it, it just as mark said everyone comes with an idea but all too often people just go oh yeah i deserve a seat at the table because i've got an idea yeah. and it can be a great idea and i'm not knocking people who have got ideas but you have to produce things yeah in order to so somebody else goes okay sit down and that's a, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And also, I mean, you were fortunate that you had a profession in writing. Yeah. So you, 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 you did your reps, you had your chops in at least the act of putting your hands there and putting, putting a story together. Yeah. So that's makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I one time I did like a back of envelope calculation, and I think it was like by the time I was thirty, I had had like some somewhere around like three million words published. Mm. Unbelievable. You know, most of them not that good. Sure. Well, isn't that still the case? I mean, the majority <laughs> of what we write is not good, and I'm not saying that the work that you're producing isn't good, man. But what I'm saying is that. It takes however many drafts of bad writing to get to the thing. And so yeah. let's let's talk about bad writing and drafting and let's yeah. talk about novel novel writing. Because yeah. I'm, I'm reading your book and unfortunately wasn't able to read it in three days. So I apologize. It's un- understandable. My, yeah. I mean, Arca did cut into my reading time. You know, that took me a day and a half to get through. So yeah. it is going to that point of you know we can circle back to the writer's block aspect in this one Um, yeah i think that that fits really well i spend a predominant amount of time writing novel writing or that's a dumb way of saying it and i spend a lot of time with writers there you you revised it there you go I'll, i'll edit that out too and but often there are people who come into the sphere and the ubiquitous question is asked, well, how do you write a book? And my pain in the ass response is, well, you sit down in a chair in front of whatever device you use to write with, whether it's a pad of paper, a computer, or a typewriter, or a recorder, and you put your hands on the device and you start pushing buttons. Yeah. And what I feel having done the process and seen people go through the process is that the fear of what we see on shelves on our shelves and on our television screens and in movie theaters is a finished product and it's as good as it can be 
at that time. And it's, yeah. it can be great, but that's a daunting task when you sit down and you put something down and it's not that. And the response, I think the natural response is, well, I guess I'm not good at this, but the act of writing isn't putting something down and it being perfect. The act of writing is fixing the idea and making it work. Yeah. I, so there's one piece of advice that I try to give people because I, I think that there's one thing that, that people do get stuck on and that and it is a, a frustration point for people. <clears throat> and so very generally, like my, my big philosophy on, on writing is that you actually need to be a master of two disciplines. You need to be a master of writing and you need to be a master of storytelling. And these are hmm. different disciplines. And people don't think of it that way. They just think of, I need to go write a book. And they don't think of, I need to tell a story and write it well. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of a kind of like production chain to it when you start to think of storytelling and writing in different ways. But I think what often happens to people is they get like, you know, neck deep in the writing and they're hitting on these really big story problems and they don't realize that that you know it's they don't have that understanding of like oh i can pull back and and really analyze the story separately mm -hmm. and it's it's just like I, it can kind of feel like it's like you have a table of sand in front of you and you're trying to build shapes in it and then you're like you know trying to make the whole thing beautiful but then you like you do that thing and you drag your elbow through this thing and then you ruin that sure you know, just this giant mess and like and that that is super frustrating so some of it is, I think, just really, uh, really focusing on story and and building up kind of that plan of the story, even if it's just some basic mile markers and just knowing the story that you're telling uh, mm -hmm. before before you get deep and you're like, oh crap, I don't. You where know, am I? Where am I? Um, so so there's that that aspect, but then ab like absolutely, you know, the thing that I always tell people is my my training was I I was a newspaper reporter, and there was a period where I was on the crime beat and I was doing uh, what we called night cops. Night cops is you start your day around like noon and you go until like 10 p.m. and you come in, you get the police scanner, and that's the radio where the cops and dispatchers are talking to each other, and so you're listening in on all the stuff that they're talking about. And then you're like going to the police stations and getting, you know, crime reports on like this happened, this happened, this happened, following up on, you know, whatever needs to be followed up on. But you, the whole time you're listening to that scanner. And so sometimes it would happen where it's like nine at night, eight thirty at night, all of a sudden it's like shots fired, whatever, whatever. And, you know, there was one night where it's, it's really creeping up on deadline and I get this call of this like, you know, naked man running around the street with a knife and a dead body with multiple or, you know, body with multiple stab wounds. And right. it's, it's at this apartment complex. So I'm like, all right, like run, you know, tell, I tell the copy desk, like, hold on, like run to my car, haul across the city, like go talk to neighbors, talk to cops, like look at what's happening. Like watch the police tackle this naked guy that got into a knife mm -hmm. fight. Um, you know, talk to the cops, like get everything I can, like get back in my car you know, and I'm like on the phone, like dictating stuff 
to the copy desk as I'm driving, rush upstairs and I've got to file this story. And it's not like, well, you know, I have writer's block. Like I can't quite figure out what, right. what to do here. Like if I don't do this, I don't have a job in the morning. So I just do it. And it's like, yeah. it, it is as good as it can be in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, a. I mean, I think the thing about creativity, it's a muscle. The more you exercise it, the better shape that it is, and it will be there for you when you need it. And where I know that I do fall short on is the craft aspect. Like I can't, I don't have the ability to fall back on craft as a writer to you know, grind my way through it. But I have, you know, 30, de three, 30, three decades of. How old are you? I'm, I'm 720. <laughs> years old, so. um, you look great. Hey man, it's I, great. Can I just say? Yeah, well, the blood of babies is really a it's an amazing elixir. Mm. Um the but the storytelling, that's where my that's there's my craft I can fall back on. Yeah. I have three decades of storytelling in my back pocket that I'm always able to at least whip up, you know, and gin up, you know the character, the, you know, the setting, the, whatever the thing is to make it a thing. And then I know, you know what, when I go back through it, I'll be able to fix those things that I know that I need to work on that. I just don't have as far as craft goes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm very similar. I mean, my, like, I'm, I'm never going to be the sharpest writer in the room. I'm never going to be that like, you know, person that just crafts these hyper beautiful languages or, you know, sentences mm -hmm. that, that everyone is, is ooing and, and awing over. And I, I don't, I don't get into really weird stylization stuff. I mean, I, I, I like some formal experimentation, but I, um, you know, my kind of approach to writing is, is to think of it as, um, like sculpting out of stone. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, and I, I rewrite a lot as I go. And so I just am going back to it and, and I, I'll read stuff out loud. Um, and at the very least, I'm reading it in my head. And it's just that like looking for rough edges. And so I'm, you know, I'm just turning, turning a sentence again and again. And if there's some little thing that I'm just like, just scratching, I'm like, all right, like, what can I do to just cut, you know, slice that little bit off and, and refine it? It's not always, but it's not always in that sentence. You know, that's the weird thing. Sometimes you, you're finding that rough thing, but then you have to kind of like go back, read what you're and like, oh, you know mm -hmm. what? Like I'm, this is the wrong POV. Like the wrong character is oh, talking yeah. in this one or the, oh, hey, I need to be paying more attention to what these characters are trying to achieve because you can get hung up on the sentence saying, oh man, it's just not the sentence isn't yeah. working. Well, it's just context. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the balance of looking at both of those things. I mean, and that's where having good readers really, really helps. And, yeah. and like the novel, you know, I, um, I mean, I had written two bad novels, and I had never really had readers on them. And so this novel, I, I had good readers on, and you know, the help of my agent and help of an editor. And I mean, I, I rewrote it like three times and even the okay. the final time that I wrote it, like I, they weren't huge notes, but I actually wrote it fresh from scratch. Okay. So that's interesting. Cause I, like I, I had the printout 
of it yeah. next to me. Um, but I, like I, and, and part of it was I had the, you know, the very first draft had been like four years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just like, you know, like I, I want it to, I want it to feel like a book that I would write now, not the book I wrote four years ago. Um, but I mean, I was t- just terrified and like had no, I had no thought of like, oh, I, you know, I know how to write, I write comics and like, I've, I've written nonfiction. I was like, I hope this doesn't suck. And, yeah. um, I just had to go through the exercise, uh, which like, I didn't think about is like, you have a book coming out, you have to get blurbs for it. So you have to go to established authors and be like, Hey, will you read this? And like, if you like, mm-hmm. if you like it, will you write something? And Oh, I was just like, oh, I'm gonna get exposed. <laughs> these, <laughs> these these people are gonna hate this book, and um, and I mean, maybe the most like the happiest that I've ever felt as a writer was getting those, you know, those responses back where people are like, "This is good. Like, you can write. Right. Like, get over yourself. Like, you you can right. do it." Yeah, I have a terrible habit of. You know, downplaying everything I do, even before people get their hands on whatever the thing is. And my angel of a godmother wrote an email to me saying, you need to stop doing that. Just yeah. straight up stop doing that because what you do is worth people paying attention to and just leave it there. Yeah. Don't. It's a very Midwestern ethos. So I'm surprised, you know, to, to hear it from a some fancy New Yorker, New Yorker like me. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, well, when you see me walking around in my uh, solid gold suit, you'll know I've changed my <laughs> attitude completely. Just solid gold suit, sucking on baby puree. I know. It's like, hey, what you drinking there? None of your business. It's just called life. It's called life. I love that idea. I'm terrified of that idea also, of the just writing it fresh. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't, this is the other thing is books are tricky because like everyone you, you have to approach is a unique thing. And the, like the process changes mm-hmm. book to book. Um, yeah. Cause I, I, like I had one, so that actually the very first comic script I wrote uh, was this story, which it's, it's based on a, a true bit of history, which is that, um, so Santa Ana, the Mexican general and president, like he was in and out of power like seven times. And <laughs> uh, during the pastry war with France, he got his his leg knocked off by a cannonball at the knee. And so his, wow. his false leg was very famous and it like showed up like there there I think there are like three different museums who that claim to have his his artificial leg uh, okay. and it was like after um after his army was captured in texas after the alamo like that was how they identified him it was like he he tried to dress himself up as like a, a run-of-the-mill soldier but he he had a limp so they knew but anyway he um his like the actual leg that got knocked off he gave it a full military funeral and um and then one of the times he fell out of power, people dug up his leg and dragged it through the street. Oh my God. And that's like, I heard that I had a, a Mexican history class in college and that just always really stuck with me of just like how insane that was. And 
So I wrote this graphic novel called The Leg that is about Santa Ana's disembodied leg that's like in a boot adventuring across Mexico in the 1930s. <laughs> and is super weird. Uh, I love it. And so I, and I like, I was never going to do anything with it. I was just like, this is really weird. It like, I taught myself how to write and format comics with them, but, but like, that's it. And it sat and it sat. And then I got introduced to this artist, um, Joe Pimienta, who um, we met at, at Comic-Con one year. And he was, he was like, oh, I'd like, I'd love to work together. And I was like, I, I don't really have anything at the moment. Like the only thing, the only script I have is this like book about Santa and his leg. And he was like, wait, tell me a little bit. And so I told him, he was like, I grew up in Mexico. Like, please let me read this script. And I was just like, oh. Like the record scratch. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, okay, but like, you're going to hate it. Um, and he, he read it. And then, and I had, you know, gone home by that point. And he emailed me, he was like, I had to wait until I stopped crying to to email you, but please let me draw this book. Wow. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, yes. Like, I let me pay you to draw the book. So he, um, you know, he was ready to jump into it. And I looked back at that script and I'm like, and, it, and I had, you know, at that point I was drawing or writing for DC Comics, which is this very hyper-structured, like, you mm-hmm. know, like clean story-focused thing. And so I had really gotten into this mode of like super structured storytelling. And I look back at that script and I was just like, oh, this is such a mess. Like I really need to go and completely rewrite it. And I stopped myself. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, this one is super imperfect and messy, but like, I don't, I I think that if I like go in and hyper-structure it, it's going to lose that magic. It's like, it's like that, um, what do they call it? Quantizing music that they do now where they, everything is in the exact beat and everything is at the right frequency. Yeah. And it may sound, and I'm using air quotes, perfect, but it really isn't because it's the imperfections that we hear in music and in human performance that we go, oh, that's, that's what I like. Well, I, I, and I, this is not, (laughs) this is a perspective I'm going to share that no one else in the world agrees with. So huge grain of salt. Um, oh, good. I hate, 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 hate CG animation. Okay. Like there's, there's almost none of it that, that resonates with me at all. Like it just feels so stiff. And I, so I, I realized that I was like, like, I just, I can't connect with this aesthetic and like why but like i love animation Mm -hmm. and like what is that like you know i think that part of it is that like my brain can actually connect to animation because it's like i i understand how it was made like i get Mm -hmm. like the hand drawing and and putting it together and 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 yeah it's like it does it has these imperfections in it yep where this other thing is so clean and so clear and so crisp and and it's all like algorithmed uh mm-hmm. so expertly that it yeah it's it's just inert to me i'll give you a, a real world non-comic example of this 
for bread and butter, I do a lot of art direction and design for large companies who want to do special events. So like I, like last fall, I did a, um, a pop-up store in the diamond district in New York city in Manhattan for eBay. So we completely rebuilt this interior for three days. Like it was just up for three days. And one of those days was only for private people, but, but two days for the public. And with many of these jobs, what they walk in the, you walk into the meeting and what they immediately want to see from you is a rendering, a computer rendering of what the idea is going to be. I have disabused the client who hires me to do these jobs to deliver these computer renderings because what happens is the people who are looking at these things that are well constructed see these as real. And they, because the concept hasn't been completely fleshed out, this is like, this is the the rough draft, but we're showing you final looking artwork for a rough draft. It's full of mistakes. And the non-creator can't look at something with mistakes and see it as a work in progress to evolve toward. They look at it as wrong. Yeah. I will only start things off with hand drawings because I can't afford to waste my time in the other aspect. So I know that when a human looks at something another human creates with their hands, they can put, they can fill the gaps in. Yeah. They go, well, that doesn't look exactly like the chair we have envisioned, but we know it's a chair and that's okay because we have an idea of what we want the chair to look like. And then you could, so there's, it's not an X, it's not a red X. It's yeah. a, it's an okay. We yeah. can move forward. And I get that when it comes to the animation. I, I don't hold your, you know, your Lonely Man Hill stance towards, you know, CG because I love me some Pixar movies. But for the most part, I do understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I guess a better way of putting it is I look at every Pixar movie as I think it would be better if it was traditionally animated. Right. Okay. Yeah. But again, it's 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 lonely on this hill. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, it. it, it I mean, it's listen. This is what happens, you know, as we all age into becoming um, cavemen. Um, Grumpy seven seven hundred year olds. Yes, our belief systems are far out of date. Um, did you read Creativity Incorporated? No. Okay, I'll uh, I'll send you the information. Okay. Yeah, you like it? But, yeah, I have I have not heard of that, but based on title alone. Yep. I think I'm in. Um, it seems like we could kind of do this for a long time, so I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, let you get... <laughs> yeah I, I, this is this is one of those conversations where god only knows where it would end up and what we would be talking about but uh yeah i i yeah i mean that this is the problem with with writers um we'll we'll we, we can get into it and uh so i i appreciate that in so many ways why don't you let anybody listening know what they can look forward to and or what they can go find of yours that you really want them to read. Um. Yeah. Um, well, welcome people to check out vanjensen.com. Um, that's got a, a page that's got all of my comics works. 
on it. Um, so I, you know, I'm always happy if anyone wants to check out anything that I've written. Um, the book Two Dead with Nate Powell, that's a, a really special one that um, it came out right before the pandemic. So we didn't get as many eyes on it as I was hoping. So I, I just, everyone who reads it really seems to take to it. So I hope that more people will, will check that out. Um, and then I've got uh, Arca coming out in July. Um, I'm going to be doing a comic book anthology uh, that will be launching on the Zoop platform in May. Oh, cool. Um, that's going to be around the works of Fletcher Hanks, who is a super weirdo uh, Golden Age creator. Um, and then let's see, my novel Godfall is out in October or November, I believe. Um, I have a Dark Horse series called Terrace Apart with uh, Alessandro Michelli on art. He's this fabulous Italian artist. And that one is co-written by Jay Baruchel, who is the actor, uh, director, writer, uh, famous Canadian. Um, (laughs) And uh, let's see. Oh, and then I have an ongoing series coming from IDW uh, later this year or early next year that uh, I can't share the title yet, but I think is the best thing that I've ever written. Well, I can highly recommend Arca. It was incredibly hard to put down. Jesse, of course, is Jesse. Uh, Jesse Lonergan is amazing. He, Phenomenal. I, I mean, yeah, he his work is just always compelling and so thoughtful. Yeah, he, um, I just, I can't say enough about him. I mean, he, he brought so much to the story of the book. He, um, you know, it's like early on, he sends me this, this page and it's like, um, you know, here, this is the grid that I'm planning on. And it's this super intricate grid. Here's the grid Mm -hmm. that I'm planning on using for this book. It's like, yeah, yeah, man. Like that's. That's amazing that like I I don't know that I've ever had any artist you know think about the grid yeah. of structure and I mean I I can't count how many times I wrote like a five panel page and he turned it into a seventeen panel page. <laughs> I would sit there I would sit there and count panels on those pages. I'm like twenty three panels. All right, man. You all yeah. Well, in the you know it there's this thing that you do in writing comic books where it's like, once the art is finished, then you go and write a lettering draft of the script mm-hmm. that it, you know, you take the, the actual art and give the letterer this like, cause you know, the, the artist absolutely should change the structure of the script uh, to, to maximize the storytelling. And so that there are always going to be those changes. And with this one, I was just like, yeah, like, can they just look at Jesse's roughs with like balloon placements and then I'll like rework dialogue as needed. But mm-hmm. like, I, you know, to, what are you going to do? It would take me like two months <laughs> to, right, right. to write all. Yeah. Panel 21, panel 22, panel 23. Yeah. Well, I taught, I, I, you know, cause like we typically view like the artist as the actor in so many ways when it comes to what's going on the page. But I also feel that that lettering pass, that's the chance for the for the writer to be a bit of an actor too, because you really can 
push yeah. and pull things in and really gin up the drama or play things down. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like there's a lot of quality to that metaphor, but then um, there there are some places where it falls a little bit short, I guess. And um, you know, one of the um, I guess kind of generally like the way that I look at it is when I write a comic book script, it is one letter in an ongoing back and forth communication. Like that, like a comic book script is a letter to the artist. Yeah. And it's cool. And so, you know, every, like people ask me like, how do you like, how do you write the script? Like what's the voice of it? What's the, and the formatting mostly stays the same, but um, yeah, like the, the tone of each of my scripts is different because my collaborators are different. Like I wouldn't write the same letter to the same, to, to different people. Like I, you know, I'm, I am communicating with that very specific person. And, mm -hmm. and then the great thing is like, when you have a good rapport, like that, that dialogue, it goes back and forth. And so, yeah, like the, like you said, the lettering adjusting it at the, the last stage is that is a response to the art, which is a response to, my script yeah yeah it's just the return letter back yeah yeah that's cool i like that i really like that um van this was great i really enjoyed talking with you and, same uh, super excited i'm super excited to finish the book so um it's a great premise i'm not going to give anything away because it's just it's really really interesting i'm excited to get, see where it goes and talking with you really ties so much together i love i love that there, there's definitely, yeah, there's a lot of our conversation that's present in the novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's quite fantastic. And I can't wait to get, get through it. Um, and that's in a positive way, not get through it. like it's <laughs> Well, this is, this has been just a, a huge pleasure. Uh, we will, we will have to do it again. Uh, if only so that I can get that recipe for baby puree. Hmm. It'll be in the email. Don't <laughs> Perfect. See you, man. All right. See you.